and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. I'm thrilled to be back in the studio this afternoon with a, a incredible guest that I'm, I'm truly honored to have uh, join me this afternoon. And before we get started, I would like to give out our website address. If you're looking to uh, see our lineup that we have and, and all events around Women to Watch, you can find us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels as well for um, all kinds of wonderful, inspirational uh, stories and, and again some uh, more uh, information around the women that we're going to be having on the show as well as our on the road series where we're actually going out to women's place of work and doing some wonderful video interviews and you can find us on uh, Twitter Facebook and Instagram so I'd like to get right to uh, bringing on my guest for this afternoon her name is Mary Mazio. And Mary is the founder of 50 Eggs. She is an award-winning American documentary filmmaker. She also happens to be an attorney, and she was a rower for the U.S. Olympics in 1992. So uh, I'd like to welcome Mary to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you this afternoon, and I can imagine it must be tough to find an hour in your day uh, to give to to do this interview, so I'm grateful and uh, happy to have you calling in from Boston. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So listen, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background and your upbringing with our listeners. Uh, I understand that you were the oldest of four sisters, and you grew up in Needham, Massachusetts. I did. Give us, paint us a picture of... Oh, go ahead. Go Needham Rockets. There you go. Okay. (laughs) Um, I want to see a a picture of the young Mary and uh, a little bit about, you know, what helped shape the confidence it has taken you to um, to get to this place? Well, the picture of a young Mary wasn't um, always the prettiest, I have to say. I mean, I was, when I was a, um, like a young student, I had always dreamed and wanted to be an athlete. And in fact, I was cut from, you mentioned that I was on the Olympic team. I was actually cut from almost every high school team. I had absolutely zero eye-hand coordination, Oh, um, and, and literally I threw the javelin my senior year for the varsity track team. Um, I was on the JV softball team. I'm not even sure why the coach let me on the team. Cause I would literally <laughs> close my eyes every time the ball came to me. Um, and so I was a cheerleader. I was a Needham high school cheerleader, which, you know, when I became a true athlete, um, or a realized athlete years later, you know, my teammates just thought, found that just absolutely hysterical. Yeah, well, I would say I don't think that's typical to, to, to be a cheerleader and then go and become um, the athlete at the level you did. 
Right. I, I think there were a few of us, um, and generally the, those that were cheerleaders were often like on the bottom where we would hoist women up on our shoulders, right? Like <laughs> yes. an early indicator of some strength, which is just so funny. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the early days um, as a high schooler were, you know, really um, kind of funny in, in retrospect. I was, you know, I played the cello. And um, that was not a cool instrument to play back in the day. And mm. I was quite serious about it. But you can imagine me, like, sixth, seventh grade, lugging a school box, right, with my enormous cello onto a yellow school bus. Like, yes. that was just – I was not where it was at. <laughs> Taking up space on the bus. Oh, my God, yes. And, yeah. you know, the seventh, eighth grade years are just – horrific oh, so if hard. you're different right yes. if you're not cool if you don't have the you know the the coolest clothes or you know up to date in style in vogue and i was absolutely the opposite of being in vogue so <laughs> and so are my sisters as well so yeah those early days were challenging and you know and you sort of you know back then you know, nobody called it bullying, right? Nobody called it harassment. Nobody called it what it was, right? What you just sort of muddle through and mm. you figure out your way forward That's as painful right. as those years are for all of us, right? All of us look back when we're in seventh and eighth grade and, and cringe, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but it's interesting that you were choosing to um, kind of not be a follower, not be mainstream and, and or perhaps you, you know, you were following what was of interest to you, but tell me about that. Were you feeling kind of, you know, insecure about the fact that your interests might not be what was considered the cool thing to be involved well, in? Well, part of it was, you know, there were four of us, right? So I was the cellist. And because I didn't have any obvious athletic, I had no eye-hand coordination, right? I was sort of that that kid, the kid that played the cello. I was in the orchestra, right? And um, so I desperately wanted to be a follower. (laughs) I became a non-follower literally by default. Oh my God, if I had been in the cool kids crowd or, you know, uh, it just, you know, but uh, fortunately fate intervened, right? Because I was able to sort of learn lessons early on. I mean, I, what I didn't know about my mother, particularly in the early days, like she had so many struggles of her own that I later came to realize how much of a role model she was, not just for me, but my my other sisters, right? And so that was another element. My mother didn't have any money to buy us clothes, didn't have any money to um, help us be lemmings and followers, right? So again, you know, out of necessity, we sort of, we stuck out, my sisters and I, and, um, you know, then figured our way. I I was able to, you know, my, my parents had a divorce and there were really true lack of funds. And, and it, at that point, I didn't realize what a star my mother truly was and how she, you know, she had to get a job. She had to be self-sufficient. She had to support four daughters. She had to figure out. And, and back then, you know, we'd have sometimes like spaghetti with ketchup, right? Mm. Like that's literally how much money she had. And I remember being like, oh, this is a weird dinner. Okay. You know, oh, it's better than the fish sticks, <laughs> fish sticks and the tater tots, right? Like, right. But, but we were not, my mother didn't complain, didn't, right? We never knew that my mother was on food stamps. Wow. I had not a clue, wow. right? Never knew how close to the line we were. And so, um, you know, at that point, you, I think I was 14 years old when I, when I got my first job. 
and that was that sort of economic freedom. I could buy the Levi's. I could find. I, I could buy all the stuff. Finally, right? Um, I could start to buy things that um, that made me less of an outlier in high school, right? So you know, and you figure your way around, and you become a cheerleader. And okay, well, that that kind of like okay, you're a little bit just a, a smidge cooler, and <laughs> um, and then sort of figure out who you are mm. and what your personality is and you grow into it, right? So I was a person who grew into um, my quirkiness and my difference um, over time. And and I have to say, going to a women's college, I mean, I went to Mount Holyoke and what a stroke of luck that they uh, they made it possible for me to go to college, number one, right, with a very generous um, package right, grants and loans and the whole nine yards where I could actually go to college. And even more importantly, discover, you know, I was a kid in high school. I cared a lot about what people thought, right? I dated the football captain, for Christ's sake. I mean, wow, (laughs) it's all about. Well, you must have been cooler than you're letting on, Mary. If you well, did. <laughs> no, finally my senior my senior year just like a little bit, but you know, but honestly, it really took going to a women's college to grow into your voice. Like if you had asked me coming out of high school, were women oppressed, right? Were there limitations on women? Were there limitations on what women could achieve or earn or succeed? I had not a clue. I would have said, "What are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. And it took going to a women's college for me to understand all of the impediments of gender, right? I had not a clue. And in fact, I think for so many women today and coming up when I did, it was the women a generation before that burned the bras, right? That had to demonstrate in public squares, that had to really fight for equality because back in the 70s, for example, in the late 60s and 70s, inequality was so visible. Right. And when I got into the workplace, which was late 80s, early 90s, it was much more invisible. Right. And so as somebody once said to me, women had so much more and accepted so much less. Right. Like 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 because the glass ceiling was much more. You couldn't see it when you were starting out. You might make the same amount of money as the man that might have an office, you know, one one door away. But boy, 10 years later, you go see what his paycheck is versus yours. That is when the glass ceiling rears its ugly head and, oh, you look up and there it is. But mm-hmm. for so many women just starting out, right, you don't see it. it things are on the surface much more equal than, than, than truly is, is, is in real life. Mm-hmm. And that continues to this day, right? So going to Mount Holyoke for me was transformative in so many ways because – it, it, it was a women's college, and so I was able to figure out who I was in a really authentic way and that I could have a voice, and it could be obnoxious, it could be opinionated, but I could have it, and it was a really safe place to exercise those things. And I remember my mother saying to me, you know, you should go to Mount Holyoke, and I was thinking at the time, like, all women, are you kidding me? Right. And she said, you know, I think you have – she didn't say, like, you're bossy. But that's what she meant, right? Like you have some bossiness. You have some. <laughs> you have something to say. <laughs> you yeah. have something to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be. You should go here and channel that. Mm. And what a gift that was in terms of her guiding me, 
right to some of the options I was I was had and was looking at. Well, so, that's interesting. Do you think Holyoke, she saw that for you, but not your other sisters? I think if she had known what I would learn at an all women's institution, honestly, she would have encouraged all of us to go okay. to all women's institutions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, my sister Carla, my youngest sister, went to Barnard, which was again sort of. I mean, it's part of the Columbia campus, but that is an all you know all women. Mm-hmm. So okay. two of the four of us went to you know all female institutions. So yeah. I think in retrospect, she and and in fact. For me, it was really important for, for, for my daughter to go to an all-girls high school. Mm-hmm. And I, she was a, my daughter was a very talented athlete, and so I knew that she would have extraordinary opportunities at you know, a, 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 a co-ed university. Oftentimes, the, the only drawback, and this is not universally true, but the athletic and the competitiveness at women's colleges can be, it, they're, they're often D3, right, which is perfectly great and perfectly acceptable. But for the outlier athletes who want a D1 experience, yes, they're, um, you know, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> yeah. It's harder to do that at a women's college. So right. my daughter went to an all-girls all high school. Yeah. Well, I, what do you say to the naysayers who, I, I understand why, I believe there's such an advantage to be in that environment. It's just so incredibly focused uh, around encouraging women to lead in, in all areas. Um, so what do you say to the naysayers who say, oh, gosh, if you're you know at an all-girls school, you don't learn how to uh, socialize with the men or the boys or you know hold your own with them? Uh, you know, it, the, people do say that with no empirical data. Um, there are definite you know, there are pluses and minuses to going to a women's college, right? And the fact is you are not in class with men um, for that four-year period. But there have been studies that have been done that women from women's colleges will far exceed or crash through the, you know, glass ceiling in ways that other women often don't. The other women that you see in sort of the highest achieving category are not just women's co- women co- women sorry women's college graduates, but also those that participate, like in female sports teams. Yes, right. Yes. So that ability to be with women, there are those that say, well, you don't. You need to be able to compete with men um, everywhere. And I would say taking those four years to to find out who you are and have the courage in your voice, mm-hmm. and then come out. And use that voice and compete. And I remember going to law school um, right after Mount Holyoke, and it, I was at Georgetown, 50-50 men and women. I was blown away, and this is the late 80s, I was blown away at how little the women talked in class. Mm. And I was, like, raising my hand and, you know, making comments. And I was, I remember I made a comment. And I was completely unprepared. I was called on. You know, in law school, you get called on. And it's just in front of, you know, 300 people or whatever. It's just uh, – and sometimes you're berated, right, um, the Socratic method. And I had not done the reading. And so I just – and I said something. I used the word regalia. And the class, right, I'm like, oh, so, so-and-so is like in his, in his hunting regalia. And, you know, I'm, I'm in like saying something really forcefully, not knowing what the hell I was talking about. And the class burst out laughing. And one of my male – um, classmates came up to me and he said, boy, I'm so impressed. I said, what do you mean? He said that a woman would be funny in a law school class. 
And I remember thinking, what did what just came out of your mouth? And he didn't mean it malevolently, right? No, he was, he was genuinely like, hey, good on yes, ya. yes, he was genuinely surprised. He was, and I was like, oh my god, right? So I was, I felt like I was really prepared having gone to women's college to be able to compete and use my voice. And mm-hmm. I was often in situations, particularly early in my career as a lawyer, where I would be at a meeting and I would say something, it would not be recognized. And I think every woman in business will say this has happened to her at some point, right? And then a male colleague would say exactly what I said. <laughs> and oh yeah, Jim, good point. Right. And I remember that <laughs> happened to me and I literally stood up and I said, all right, I just said that five minutes ago. What am I, chop liver? You know, and I, I handled it like that sort of humor. Like I was like, what the F, people? Um, I just said that. But I was like smiling, right? Yeah, right. Because you can't take some of these things, you cannot take, take it so seriously because oftentimes it's not malevolent. It's how people are socialized and conditioned, right? And That's how right. do it's you a, get through yes. them? And sometimes... Right. Sometimes you have to throw up your fist and scream. Other times for me, I was I was like, okay, I'm got to say something, but I'm just going to say it in my normal sort of way, which is the only way that I know how. And I think, you know, how how women choose to deal with that in the workplace is whatever comes authentically to that person. Yeah. You know, I'm loud, I'm Italian, I'm obnoxious, I'm a Bostonian. Like all the all the <laughs> why oh, I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Excellent point. Um, um but, but go th- ahead. yeah, that's that's being a Bostonian, right? We, we we're very much um on the edge in terms of how we talk and how we drive especially, right? So yeah. uh so that worked for me. Yeah. Um and sometimes, you know, you lose some battles, you gain another. I remember I had a fellowship to be to go to Korea and to work in a Korean law firm. And I was, I think I was the only one of two actual attorneys that were women. Everybody was, the only women were in secretarial roles. Oh, I bet. And I remember they tried to put me at the secretarial pool and they Mm -hmm. would refer to me as, you know, it was Mijmagio, right? Mijmagio. And all of the secretaries were were referred to as Ms. So-and-so, and and all the lawyers were referred to by their initials. And I was like, no, please call me MCM. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, no, but Ms. Maggio. And I'm like, no, MCM, and please take my desk out of the secretarial. But you know what I mean? It was was such an interesting um, cultural dynamic, which was much more profound in Korea, right, than in America. And I remember... and, and I remember we finally, like, they had a tradition where, like, the low man on the totem pole or the low woman, as it were, would be often asked to sing in public. And there was a big Christmas party by my law firm. Again, all of the lawyers were male, mostly Korean, but some American and, you know, British and such. And the Korean partner said, all right, Mary, you're, we've just heard the, the national treasure of Korea get up and sing. We want you to get up and sing. You're going to follow him. And I was like, oh. I'm wearing a bright red dress. <laughs> I get up in front of literally 300 people, and I had been in musicals, right? So I'm like, okay, if I'm going to sing, like Wait, I need I mean, to sing you a sing chorus too? with me. So you and do. So I, <laughs> you do. You're a singer as well. You said you had been in musicals. Oh yeah, it's my torch. <laughs> yes, but like this at this point, like it's torch singing. So I launch into the and I, and I and so I'm like, by the way, you have to stamp your feet and and click your hands, you know, snap your fingers. 
and say steam heat like when I point to you. And so I, I'd, I'd launch into you got stomp your feet steam heat you got and so they're going steam heater steam heater they're so into it i'm so into it and what was so hilarious about that was that the very next day i was referred to as mcm right right that you know you have these you have these human moments right where mm. they they see you as who you are and not Pain, a painful, you know, please take me out of the secretarial pool. Right. So, you know, I was, uh, it was just a wonderful learning experience going into a really male culture after having the benefit of an all women's education. That's so I, right. I'd say, you know, to your question before, can you compete? I think you can compete better whether it's an all girls high school and all women's college. I'm a huge believer in that or an all-female sports team, or some sort of all-female camp, right? Sometimes you can get that very same experience. Yeah. So it, you know, it prepares you from a personal development standpoint, you know, for what's to come in, in any environment, whether you're the only woman in the room or you're, you know, sitting at a, at a, at a board table uh, full of women. It, it really does. It gives you that back uh not, you know, it's just the background in being able to use your voice. You know, you. I want to back up for a second. You had described your mom to me as as your hero, and was she the one that fostered in you and your sisters to to never be afraid to speak up, or did that come, you know, from you and she your own? Did. And yeah, she it, it, she really did. Yeah, she really did. She fostered the independence because she had such a painful time. Um, getting on her own two feet economically, she said to us, you, you should never be dependent on anyone financially, not a husband, not a man. Um, you should not be, you know, a significant other. You should not be dependent on anyone, period, because she found herself in a situation where she was economically and financially dependent in a really devastating way. Yeah. And in a really dangerous way. And so she said to us, I remember early on, you know, you have to be your own person. You have to be financially independent and you have to have a voice. And I think it's because she had neither. Yeah. Um, listen, we're going to take a quick break. Really when we instilled that. It... Oh, OK. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, Mary. And when we come back, I want to talk about how you, you know, went from um, your uh, desire to be an attorney uh, to getting into film. We'll be right back. This is Kristen Hilsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hilsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more. All available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. 
That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Mary Maggio, founder of 50 Eggs. And it occurred to me, Mary, we should probably tell the listeners the, um, the story behind the name of your company. Oh, thank you for asking, Sue. So when... Um I started writing screenplays and thinking about doing some visual media. I remember my husband said to me, I thought I would name my company Medusa's Revenge, right? We're talking about an all-women's education and how funny that would be, right? Right. I remember my husband said to me, Mary, if you have a woman with snakes coming out of her head (laughs) as your corporate logo, like (laughs) you can pretty much say goodbye to any kind of funding, right? Um, Right. Honestly. And I'm like, but isn't it funny? And he's like, uh, not so much. So Everyone doesn't like, have the same sense of humor. To stone. Yeah. Exactly. So, so he's like, your favorite film is Cool Hand Luke. And that's an old Paul Newman movie that I loved. And, and he said, you know, there's a scene in that movie where Paul Newman is this character and everybody uh, bets that he cannot eat 50 eggs. And he's the only one that bets on himself, and he eats all 50. Yeah. And my husband's like, like that's you. You're, you're constantly eating the eggs, right, kind of defying the odds and proving, proving to everybody that you're just going to go ahead and do it anyways, basically, right, mm. stubbornness. Yeah. So hence 50 Eggs was born. Okay. And we have now had our doors open since 2000 when our first movie came out. And, um, and all of our work is dedicated to films that have a social impact and – uh, I've been really just sort of amazed that I've been able to um, live a life, right, where you're professionally fulfilled. And I'm so humbled and thankful for that that opportunity. Mm. You know, and we will definitely get to the movies that you have done. And, of course, uh, the most recent, I Am Jane Doe. I, I wanted to find out first kind of what, you know, was the catalyst for your decision to go into film. You you received a BA in philosophy and political science um, in college. And then as you mentioned, you went on to Georgetown and got your law degree. And at some point there must have been um, you know, a moment and and you decided to um, take a different path. Can you talk about that? Sure. So it actually happened when I was um, I was a young lawyer. I was working at a, a sort of a big downtown law firm, and I was doing some pro bono work um, in housing. 
and I was an athlete, so I was a, I was a re, I was in the real estate group, not not like going and trying cases, but I was in the real estate group that had some predictable hours. But I was doing really extraordinary work um, in low-income communities, particularly about particularly with tenants who would be bounced out of their, you know, terrible living conditions. By the way, either for non-payment of rent or or or, and I remember being um, looking at a client. And it was the same – every time I would show up at court, it was the same story but a different face. It was someone with very limited means overpaying, paying market rate for an apartment that had no heat, no hot water, rats, cockroaches. And I remember being struck by the disparity, particularly like when I was a, a law student, I was doing a lot of this work, and I was paying pennies to live in a really nice place in Washington. Now, yes, with six or seven other students for sure. And here were people paying four or five or six times what I was paying for what you could barely call acceptable living conditions, right? That disparity blew me away. And I remember thinking, particularly when I, when I moved back to Boston, seeing this story over and over, and I said, you know, I'm helping people, but not really. Right? I am not doing anything systemic. This is a systemic problem. How can I think about having some sort of impact right? Like that's lasting, that really makes a difference? Um, and that's really what made me start about you know, larger visual mediums that can be incredible vehicles for social change. And that really set me on my journey. And so as I was training – for the Olympic Games, right, you would go to these camps and you'd have, you'd train in the morning, train at night, but oftentimes you'd have downtime. And so what was I doing on my downtime? I was actually scratching out screenplays. And wow. at that time, I remember I had just come out of, you know, Mount Holyoke, and mm-hmm. I'm looking around me at, the, at, at all of the visual cues, which were that women were largely two-dimensional figures, right, long-legged, blonde beauties, with nary an opinion, and I remember going to the movies, or you look at advertisements, or you crack open a magazine, and you're like, where are the women with the big thighs? Where are the women who are really smart and irritating and funny all at once? Mm -hmm. I don't see any real women and any of the conditions or, um, you know, journeys that we go through reflected anywhere around me culturally, and how devastating is that? If you're going to have daughters, how oppressive is that? Yes. And so that's really what got me thinking secondarily about jumping in. And my first documentary film was about exactly that, right? Women who push through boundaries and can inspire sort of the next generation to get out there, get dirty, get ugly, explore your limitations. You don't, you can go put on lipstick and, you know, put on your heels for a party, but be who you are and and this idea of trying to succumb to a particular norm of beauty is so detrimental to you know 99% of of women. Mm. Well, how do you think, you know, when you look at and our culture today, do you, you know, I I think we've come a long way because there's obviously just so much going on um particularly around just awareness and conversations and initiatives to empower young girls and women. But what, what's your personal view on really how different is the culture today from those years ago back in, uh, I guess it was 1999 when you um, 
you made that film, A Hero for Daisy. Yeah, we made yeah. our first film that came came out in, in 2000. And, you know, you sort of say that that film was all about sort of, you know, women that were challenging male norms in society. And the film became really a, kind of a, a cult hit, if you will. Mm -hmm. And you think about fast forward from 2000 to today, and, and this is going to wrap into my new film, which is about sex trafficking of children, right? The advertising of children online for sale that happens in this country, in every town, in every city across America. And it's a, it's a problem. And not that talked about, right? It's a not, travesty. Yes. It's, it's hidden in plain sight, Sue. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. It's, yes. It's in the numbers, and the numbers of children this happens to will make your head spin. Well, then you look at this, you know, you look at the issue of sex trafficking, and you look at the issue of pornography and readily available pornography, and what is that doing to reshape male sexuality when boys as young as eight have instant access to incredible amounts of pornography. And what I'm calling, by the way, it's not the pornography of old, right? It's not Playboy. It is hardcore, violent, what used to be outside the norm that you might get at the back of some, you know, XXX shop and the, and the wrapper, right? That might be buried in the back. This is now normalized. And there are all kinds of studies being done. How is this affecting male sexuality, objectification of women, and so when you think from a cultural standpoint, are things getting better for women, I continue to worry. Mm -hmm. You know, the irony of, of this topic right. and you your film. Increasing, I mean, I'm sorry, I was just thinking, right. you know, about what has co come out in the news recently. Um, there's, you know, the floodgates are opening in, in one arena. But tell me, I want to know your personal views because you have, you know, studied this and worked on this. Well, and I think, you know, the Me Too phenomenon mm -hmm. is extraordinary. You're seeing this, you know, you saw this with uh, sexual assault on campuses. You're seeing this with our film, which has gotten just sort of amazing, crazy press, you know, whether it's People magazine or Vogue around the purchase and sale of girls, you know, underage children online, um, what people used to call prostitution, right? And you're seeing that play out in real time now with Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein phenomenon where, you know, you've got men in power that are sexually harassing and sexually abusing younger women. Uh, and men, too. I've seen Me Too by men. That's right. right. Um, yeah. So you're seeing that start to come out in the open, which I think is, is that's a great thing when, when people can come together and start to have a dialogue around cultural norms and holding people accountable for harm to especially underaged uh, boys and girls. I think that's really extraordinary. In terms of young men and how they're being socialized and young girls and how they're being socialized, you're seeing this detachment. You, again, there are, there's wonderful innovation with technology. There's also the dark side of technology. And mm -hmm. you're seeing people glued to their phones and having shallower and shallower and shallower relationships. Yes. And I think that's sort of a frightening thing when you look out 20, 30 years, where do we go from that? You know, you've got sort of the increasing hookup culture on college campuses. Um, God, I'm going to sound, I'm a totally liberal Democrat, right? But I'm going to sound like, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about some of those social cues that we're giving our children around 
you know, the shallowness of relationships between men and women. Um, and I think that's, that's uh, you know, not a positive thing. On the other hand, you have little pockets where you're seeing men and women on teams together, right? I think that's a really exciting opportunity where you've got co-ed teams. Uh, Billie Jean King was doing it with DuPont Team Tennis, right, where men and women play together. Right. Um, I think when you have pockets where men and women are working together, right. boys and girls on co-ed sports teams, I think there is nothing better. And you're seeing greater tolerance, I think, from the next generation, right, in terms of gender fluidity and all kinds of what it means. It's just no big deal for young people. And I think that tolerance for who and what you are is a wonderful thing. And I think that marks the new generation from like our generation, right, which can be more, I don't want to say ignorant, but set in our ways, have certain stereotypes that we're just going to hang on to. Um, and I think the younger generation, it's just no big deal if you're gay. It's just no big deal if you're gender fluid. And I think that's the way it should be. Yeah. Well, you know, the the conversations you know, and awareness is always the first step. Yes. Yes. It's um, I, I think I say that all the time that things are going to change organically just because every generation has a has a, a different perspective and a different view. And you know, I have two children in, in their 20s, and um, I see such a vast difference in their views and the way they're growing up from, from even my generation. Without a doubt. Without yeah. A doubt. And I think the other piece to all of this is we are, we're in an unbelievably polarizing world right now. Never mind between men and women, between Republicans and Democrats. Yes, and, yes. And what's been gratifying about our project is we're seeing bipartisan legislation happen in response to the voices in our film, right? The strength and the courage of the mothers and their victims. That is so heartening that we can pull together, right, the left and the right, mm -hmm. because it is so acrimonious out there. And that hostility to difference can't continue, right? Because that hostility is not just men and women, it's not Republicans and Democrats, but you're seeing that that hostility play out um, so profoundly. And again, it goes back to this technological piece too, which is the lack of connection, the lack of human connectedness. And I think that's something that we have to fight to preserve going forward. Tell me, um, with regard to the film, first of all, for, for the Listeners who are, might not be familiar with this website, backpage.com, um, you had mentioned prior to the show uh, that, yes, there's, there's policies that we are looking to, um, to change, and there is a bill um, now that you are hoping will um, have an impact on these types of sites. Educate the listeners a little bit about what's happening and uh, where is, is Carl Furr today, the CEO of Backpage? <laughs> so I jumped into this when I read an article in the Boston Globe about Jane Doe number one, two, and three that filed a lawsuit against Backpage.com, which is you know, formerly owned by the Village Voice, and it's really been described um, in a later Senate investigation that sort of erupted in the middle of our project as the go-to site for commercial sex trafficking of all kinds, including the purchase and sale of children. And I remember thinking at the time, sex trafficking, what's that? 
what's that doing in this country? You know, how is this happening? These were children in Boston that filed a suit. How is this happening, you know, 10 minutes from where I live? I thought this was, you know, was confined to developing countries. That's right. right. Yes. Places yes. far, far yes. away. Yes. Well, I was quickly disabused of that notion and quickly discovered, you know, you hear of a story, a tragic story of some child that shows up at the Port Authority or is found in a dumpster and you shudder and then you go back to your life. Right. And what I came to discover was this is a crime that is in epic proportions. Right. It is happening to hundreds of thousands of children. I mean, and more than that, the state of Texas understood, University of Texas at Austin undertook a study, and they discovered that I think they had 70, they they unearthed in the state of Texas alone 70,000, maybe it was 70 or 80,000 survivors of child sex trafficking, and they were assessing the economic cost to the state, which of course was above $1 billion, right? And so you are, this is something that's hidden in plain sight. It happens in record numbers to the most vulnerable children, foster care, foster care, foster care, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Right. Homeless and runaway children, LBGTQ youth, um, uh, you know, adopted children. And so in it, this crime is sitting right out, right, right next to the opioid epidemic. And nobody's talking about that, right? So children that have drug issues, alcohol issues, high vulnerability for this to be preyed on. And what, what drew me about the article in the Boston Globe was these children were represented by Ropes and Gray, a really incredible law firm, and they had lost. They lost their case to hold Backpage to ask the question, is this online intermediary responsible, at least in part, for facilitating this crime? And there's an, uh, there's an old law on the books. It's called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which basically says that websites cannot be held responsible and nobody can sue them for posts that third parties might, might put, on, you know, put online. So if you're going to go online and say, I don't like my teacher, well, Facebook shouldn't be held responsible for that comment, right? And that makes sense. Yes, right. However, when you look at what Backpage did and what the Senate found – Right there were clear, there was clear and convincing evidence to support allegations that the company was engaged in, in fact, facilitating the crime. So, if a pimp was going to put up online, you know, um, sweet 15-year-old, a little button would come up and say, "Oops, must be at least age 18." There were all kinds of things that the Senate ultimately discovered that Backpage was doing to hide indicia of a child. Not take down the ad, oh not gosh. call law enforcement, but yep. actually scrub indicia that a child was being sold, right? Oh like Lolita, Amber Alert. Right? That, those terms would be scrubbed from ads and then put up online. So in any event, long story short, Backpage had a just an extraordinary legal team and, and really winning skirmish after skirmish. And so we jumped in to follow the journey of these children and asked the question, how in the United States of America is it possibly legal to host advertisements selling children? It's that a, yes, was yes. the fundamental question right. of our film. Right. And, you know, fast forward, we came out theatrically and, you know, thankful to, you know, so many um, people that were so supportive and we had extraordinary press. 
um, you know, Dr. Oz and People and NBC Nightly News and The Washington Post and The New York Times and on and on, mm-hmm. um, Vogue, you know, Esquire, Cosmo, you name it. And why what, did we have the coverage? Again, because this, I think, so many people don't understand that this is happening in, in every city and every town across this country, and it's been hidden in plain sight. And so the voices of the children in our film and their mothers, which, by the way, included lawsuits against Backpage filed by children in St. Louis and Seattle and elsewhere, um, the voices carried to the halls of power in Washington, D.C. And uh, fast forward, we have two pieces of legislation filed in the House and in the Senate to really close this old, the loophole of this old, outdated Internet freedom law. Mm. So that if you are an online website and you are facilitating the crime of child sex trafficking, you shouldn't be immune from lawsuit. You should be able to, you know, have the ability, a child should have the ability to have his or her day in court. And that is underway uh, as we speak in the Senate. And so that's um, been extremely gratifying to, you know, have a piece of work where people can get motivated and understand the emotional imperative of what has to be done. You know what's fascinating to me about all of this, and this might sound naive, but it's incredible to me that we need legislature to take care of a problem like this, that it wouldn't be – you know, where is the decency of the CEO of a site like this that would not say, oh, my gosh, look what's happening on our, our website. We need to take care of that. You know, how can it be? How can that not occur? That's frightening well, to me. Well, how can it be? Yeah. And, and part of it is because Backpage had extraordinary allies, and they had allies, you know, being the tech lobby. And so oftentimes you would hear, we need Internet freedom of speech. We need freedom of speech. Well, what we're talking about and what the court in Boston found was that even if Backpage had engaged in criminal conduct, they were immune from this kind of lawsuit. And that's not, that's not freedom of speech. No. We're talking about conduct that's now being protected. And so Backpage was so successful in really um, being embraced by the tech community and the Googles, the Facebooks were happy to support Backpage. And in fact, um, Google was a lead funder of the organizations that would file, anytime there was a case against Backpage by a child, would file lengthy briefs to the court supporting Backpage. And I remember thinking when I first jumped in, like, who is possibly filing in support of Backpage? Right. Well, they're Internet freedom groups, right? And they're funded by Google. I mean, in this tension you're seeing play out in real time today, these website intermediaries do not want to take any responsibility for content, even if they're making money off that content. And you're seeing that with fake news. You're seeing that with Russian ads. And you're seeing that with sex trafficking. Now, I, will, I have to tell you, though, Sue, that there was a stunning reversal on Friday. And I have to congratulate and really, um, you know, thank – Facebook and Google and Twitter, because the Internet Association has come to the table on this legislation and as of late Friday announced that they would now support this legislation after really months of doing everything they could to derail it. And I'm so thankful mm, that that, that, that's that great evolution news. is starting to happen yes. where 
right? That's a yeah. that, that, that it's a stunning reversal. That's right. And it's an amazing step forward. You know, you have to be careful when you're crafting legislation so that you don't have unintended consequences. Right. So that you're not stifling legitimate speech, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and those there are those that will say, well, unpopular speech has to be protected. Right. Well, but I th- when it's criminal or yeah. when it's unprotected, you shouldn't protect it. That's right. That's and right. And commercial speech, right? We're talking about paid advertising. So first of all, that's commercial speech, which is a completely different standard. And second of all, we're not even talking about speech. We're talking about this helping to facilitate a crime. Is a website doing that? That's right. And if they are, they ought to be held at least accountable to to the question, are you are you responsible? Nobody's suggesting you're 100% responsible for the harm to a child, but maybe you're 10%, maybe you're 20%, maybe you are more. Yeah, I you're think it's You're facilitating yeah. this crime, you're helping make it risk free. Mm-hmm. I think it comes back to right what you now said. You can buy a child. It's conduct versus speech. It's free speech is so I think broadly exactly. used when you're when you've created a platform that connects children to bad folks. What does that have to do right. with free speech? And you know there are all kinds of limit on speeches on, on speech, right? You cannot yell fire in a crowded theater, mm-hmm. right? You that's you, right. There is a price to pay for that. That is not free speech. And so we have a whole series of checks and balances. If you have speech that's going to incite criminal conduct, you can't do that either, right? So there's limits on free speech. But even within that context, as you said before, we're at a point with some of these online facilitators where you can go buy a child, where there's child abuse, where other horrific things are happening. Mm -hmm. That's the dark side of technology. And technology has simply outpaced our regulatory framework. Mm. It's that simple. Yes, yes. And why is it that a crime online is not treated like a crime that's offline? That's right. Right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And that's the issue that we're that we have been fighting, um, and that uh, that really the mothers of these children who have been victimized have been fighting and mm. fighting for years. I mean, yeah. these are women and children who have, you know, one one lawsuit against Backpage dates back to crimes happening in 2010, and the lawsuit was filed in 2011. You know, fast forward, this is 2017 now, and. Finally, something is starting to be done, and, and that is only a good thing. Mm. It, it is incredible to me. I, I, I will tell you, I only learned of this situation myself from doing this show, and I would say most people do not understand the, the enormity of it and that it's going on everywhere, as you said, every city and in the U.S. They just, they don't, I think they don't believe it. Um, we because don't know. It's, it's not, a, yeah. And it, we don't talk about it. Right. And we have... And we have this sort of cultural infusion of pretty woman, right, that this is a victimless crime, it's no big deal, and I think people don't understand the harm and the trauma that these children face. Right. And it, yeah. the crime is different now. When It's gone online. It's risk-free. You don't have to get in your car and cruise a, a seedy neighborhood, right? It is done in the privacy of a cubicle, click, click, click. All of a sudden, you show up at a hotel, and these children are shuttled from hotel room to hotel room, and they're scheduled on the hour by the hour. So the encounters are much more frequent. The trauma is much more frequent Mm. on a daily basis to these children. So the crime has changed dramatically, and 
Um, and so I'm, I'm just heartened that the responsibility of the online facilitator, which is only one piece of this entire crime. Right? That's right. But, but it's a good, it's a big one. Address. Yeah, it's the, a big the one. The other piece, it's a big one. The other piece is prevention. And we worked with the team that won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short last year to create a 10-minute animated short with the writer of Toy Story and voiced by Jessica Chastain in English and Islander Bay in Spanish. And we worked on that to be like a tool in the toolbox because children that are being victimized, I've now interviewed scores of survivors and not a single child knew until it was too late. Not a one. You know, what are the signs? What, are there any red flags we can equip children with, right? That's, uh, so that's piece number two for us and project number two for us. Right. How can we, how can we ha- have them not become vulnerable you know, that goes back to, you know, where does where does all this originate? Um, we can work on legislature right. and policy, but how can we help the children to not be vulnerable, to not get to that place? Hey, Mary, you uh, here's a question for you. The work that you've done, um, you've seen some, some tough stuff, and you've talked to, to people who have gone through such trauma. How do you remain so hopeful? I can tell in your voice you're, you're just positive by nature, um, but how do you remain hopeful when you see the gravity of, of situations like this and other social issues? Well, you know, when you see these children rise up and reclaim their voice, you cannot help but have that optimism. I mean, this crime in particular, it's, a, it's so traumatic. It is a person-breaking crime. And to see children who are struggling to recover exercise their voice and that of their mothers, right, to go through this journey to seek justice for their daughters. There's something so powerful and heroic about that because they're doing it for someone else. They're doing it. Their daughter has been victimized. Their daughter has been traumatized. They're doing it so that somebody else's daughter, that this won't happen to somebody else. Mm. And that you can't help but admire people that are willing to sort of, you know, uh, channel their own trauma into uh, doing something for somebody else. For yeah. me, that, that's, that's extraordinary. That, that there's nobody with more courage that would do something like that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I think one of, the, one of the ways that we can be actionable is, is to try to find things that give young people purpose. And in one of your films, 1098, Shoot for the Moon, um, tells the inspirational stories of teenagers who discover the power of entrepreneurship. Um, I love that because when you redirect young people's focus and and give them something that they can do that has meaning or purpose, that's the best way to um, keep them from falling prey to you know the wrong folks and and becoming vulnerable tell me what you what was the the greatest thing you learned from that film or what surprised you from 1098 where we had um young children sort of from low-income neighborhoods competing in a business plan competition these were children they were foster care kids they were kids whose parents were ravaged by drugs there were i mean these children what what was so what blew me away is that you had these children, and there are hundreds of thousands of them just like that, right, in these low-income neighborhoods, that their starting line is so far back, right, than a kid from Darien, Connecticut, 
or you know that's right you know uh, you know Park Street in New York right um, that however those children are still lining up they're aspirational they're smart they want to achieve they just need a little bit of water and that's what we're talking about for underserved children of all kinds right that they they there is so much um, that we can do for such, you know, there's so much we can do for them that just doesn't cost a lot, a lot, right? They just need a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of prodding, a little bit of support around education, mm-hmm. and they will go do extraordinary things. That's and we right. just need to reach more of those kinds of children. Yeah, I agree. Um, we just have a, a, a moment left. Tell me, first of all, where can people watch the movie, I Am Jane Doe? Where can they find it? So I am... Thank you for asking. I Am Jane Doe is now on Netflix um, in all countries everywhere. Okay. It's also on Google Play. It's on iTunes. You can come to our website, IamJaneDoeFilm.com. Uh, we would be thrilled if your listeners were to write to their member of Congress to say, please uh, pass this legislation that will close this loophole because mm-hmm. um, there's, there's still a long road ahead. But, um, you know, we, we would very much appreciate any of your listeners to be engaged on this issue because this is our most most vulnerable population of children. Okay, and we'll we'll be sharing um, your website and information after the show, so it's easy for people to find you uh, and and the movie. How about your next project? Anything in the works that you would want to share? Yeah, we've got several things all around the same sort of goal, which is you know where can we help move the needle on an issue. And so we have a lot incoming that we're parsing through right now. And uh, you will be the first to know, my friend. Okay. Uh, That sounds great. We'll have you back on um, another time. I want to say thank you to you for the work that you're doing. It's great, great work. And, you know, you're passionate about it. and, And the world needs people like you, Mary. Oh, you're so kind, Sue. Well, thank you for having me on. And we're just delighted to be able to do this kind of work. I knock on wood. Uh, that our team, which is an extraordinary team of people, are just so dedicated and and pull me along for the ride oftentimes and just uh, really appreciative of all of it. Okay. Well, listen, I I wish you continued success, and and please stay in touch with the show. And, And thanks again for taking time to share your story, Mary. My pleasure. We'll talk to you soon, Sue. Okay. Bye-bye now. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Have a great week. Feel the rain.